All right, everyone, welcome back to another live episode of Life After Midnight, Strange History Salem Style, done here for Creative North Shore. So as I'm waiting for people to get in here, we got 15 people. I'm just going to remind all of my listeners and remind all of you watching live that I'm, I'm doing this little disclaimer recording for them for later on. This is a live episode, which means that anyone listening on iTunes later on, you're going to hear me responding to people's comments in real time. You're going to hear me reference images and things like that and say a whole lot of weird things that you normally normally don't see in these polished podcast episodes that have like the spooky music in the background and a very dramatic voice. Uh, I'm not about that anyway, but this is going to be even less polished than you're normally used to. So thanks again, everyone for listening and for all of you watching live right now. Thanks for watching. I'm very, very excited about this episode because this is something that I've researched for a while. And something I sort of stumbled across on one of those like local history press books that are questionable, but still sometimes have good material. And it was something that I had noticed when I was a tour guide here in Salem, because I was a tour guide, a public tour guide for many years here in Salem that not a lot of people really talked about. So it's my way of sort of taking all of the other history that I've talked about both on the live episodes and on my episodes that are on the website and on iTunes, which is spiritualism. And I know that you guys are probably so freaking sick of hearing me talk about this, but trust me, it's worth it, I swear. So bear with me because this is actually a Salem-centric story. I haven't really done a lot of those yet. I've talked a lot about corpse medicine. I've talked about Wheeland. I have talked a little bit about some New England history with the Medfield murders episode, but I have not yet delved into anything Salem-centric, and that's for a lot of reasons. One, I'm sure a lot of you locals know how contentious a lot of that can get and how um, sort of call-out culture we can get with a lot of that history, uh, myself included, so I've sort of shied away from it. But spiritualism and studying belief in life after death has basically been my bread and butter throughout my scholarship, and so this is me sort of putting my big girl pants on and deciding to do a Salem-centric story live for all of you. So this is a big step for me. I haven't really done that since I did tours. So here we go. This episode is titled Under His Skin, The Life and Death of the Salem Seer. And yes, there was somebody who was known as the Salem seer. So thank you again, everyone at Creative North Shore for helping me do this. Uh, oh, hello, Wendy. Thanks for joining. Uh, and here we go. So obviously, I just said, you know, you've been tuning in, you've been hearing me talk about spiritualism, mediums, Lady Marjorie, which Lady Marjorie is wild. If you haven't watched that episode, just go freaking look up Lady Marjorie. So basically, I'm going to give a bit of a background about spiritualism again. So if there is anyone that has already heard that, I apologize, but I want to do it for people that haven't heard that in case I have any first-time viewers. It's going to be brief, though, and it's going to include some things that are more relevant to this story that maybe you guys haven't heard of before. So hopefully there'll be some new content in there for you when we really get into it. And so I'm going to relate to you the subject of tonight's episode now, uh, a man that a biographer known as George C. Bartlett referred to as the Salem Seer. He was born Charles Henry Foster, the Salem Seer, in 1833 in Salem, Massachusetts. Uh, and from what we know, he had a very, very interesting but actually slightly depressing life. So it is going to be a bit of a feels trip, this journey. Uh, but, you know, we get into that all the time. Most of what we know about him does come from a biography that was actually written about him 10 years after his death by a man named George C. Bartlett. And it was very fascinating to a lot of people. And what it did is it sort of endeared people to Foster after his death. And that's going to be very important as we go along. 
So he's fascinating because he literally is the illustration of everything you hear about when you think of the spiritualist movement. He got swept up in the philosophical interests surrounding the spiritualist movement, both spiritual and scientific, um, because I really do feel that it is a combination of both. That's very important. The spiritualist movement is a combination of the emotional uh, connection to that and the scientific pursuit of that. So very, very important. Charles Henry Foster reached fame and renown as a medium within the movement's circles. And he then had leaders in the field investigate his abilities. He was the subject of controversy. He was eventually cast off, but I'm not gonna ruin too much of that right away. And then he died uh, a very sort of melancholy, strange death. I like to say strange, but I would say it's more coincidental because there are others that end up in his situation that have the same sorts of beliefs at the end of his life. I would say it's more coincidental as he actually died and the way he died ties in with another area of study of mine, which shown through definitely in demonology smoke and mirrors that I worked on with intramersive media for their October show last year, or I should say ours because duh, I work for intramersive. Hello. Hi. And it became a major theme of the story for certain audiences. So even though it wasn't the caveat of that story, it became the major caveat of that story because of the interest in that subject area. And I'm not going to ruin what that subject area is to be too vague. So there's no doubt with examining the story of Charles Henry Foster that those things are entirely interconnected, the way he died and how he chose to live his life, uh, at least in this case. But I'm going to start from the very beginning this time because the story does need a linear sort of telling for it to make sense. So I'm going to begin by talking about Charles Henry Foster. So I'm going to begin by talking about him and talking about his beginnings and his introduction to the world of being a spiritualist medium. And then I'm going to interject to clarify some of the figures that gave birth to the belief system inherent in that, because that's something that I haven't really talked about. And it's so important to the scientific and like metaphysical understanding of, of how these mediums were justifying their talents. So I am going to get off track a little bit eventually and talk a little about that. But most people don't even know about Charles Henry Foster, which is something that I told you all before absolutely amazes me because with, you know, the whole how crazy hashtag spooky life and hashtag spooky and hashtag death has gotten in the past 10 years, there's and how much Salem has sort of had a renaissance with interest in life after death, which I'm very thankful for. And, you know, I'm a part of that camp, too. I've always had this interest, but seeing it come back around again and seeing so many people get interested in it has actually been great for people like me, where this is where we make our history bread and butter. But uh, that being said, I figured it's time to talk about it because people aren't exploring how that history, especially with spiritualism and seances and mediums, they aren't really exploring how that how that actually takes place in Salem and its connection to Salem, other than, you know, saying, well, this is a weird ghost story that happened or this is a weird death that happened. So I'm opening that up, really. I mean, Salem still has a spiritualist church on Warren Street here in Salem. We have one. It's called the First Spiritualist Church of Salem. Um, I actually was just looking on their website for more information today, and they are closed due to COVID, uh, but they do have information on their website about the church if you are interested in that. And again, no one talks about this, I should say, intelligently, because there are people that talk about it or mention it or have their own spooky telling of it. And, you know, that's not wrong. You know, you do you. But... It does need a little bit more scholarship behind it to properly tell it. So there was one book that was written that did a pretty decent job about spiritualism in Salem, who was written by Maggie Smith Dalton, who is a Salem resident. So I do have to shout out to her because she did actually write a book about spiritualism in Salem. 
but anyway, there's my whole number one rant. If any of you watch me frequently, you'll know that I'm pretty known for my rants. So just bear with me. The history's in there too. It'll be especially important as we start to take a look at some of Foster's abilities and what he was claiming to be able to do to explore some of the early thought processes and spiritualism too. Uh, the manifestation of physical mediumship versus mentalism is very important. So I'm going to talk a bit about that along the way. And then I'm going to talk a bit about Foster meeting Bartlett, how the two traveled together and how Bartlett is pretty much responsible for the image that we have of Foster uh, through his biography. Then, obviously, we have to get into the down and dirty of exploring the people who were very much claiming that Foster was a fraud and what their various claims were. And lastly, we will get into Foster's downfall and death, which also have a connection to a notorious North Shore institution that you all may know of that has been used in... <laughs> Carly says she's always here for the history rants, and I know that she often rants with me, so thank you, Carly. So lastly, we're going to get into that downfall and death, which, as I just said, has a connection to a notorious Salem institution, or not Salem institution, sorry, correction, North Shore institution, don't listen to that, that has been used in movies. It's been the inspiration for Lovecraftian horror, and part of it is still standing today, and it very much has a connection with none other than Charles Foster, the Salem seer. Uh, so if you're from the area, you've probably already guessed what I'm talking about or where I'm talking about. Don't spoil it for everyone and don't cheat and Google it. Just let me tell you it's interesting that way. So without further ado, let's talk about Charles Henry Foster, the seer of Salem or the Salem seer. So first, I promised you we're going to talk a little bit about spiritualism. Going to have to bear with me. Uh, for all the first time watchers, listeners out there, I always like a good review uh, for everyone else. Just bear with me. I'll try and get it a bit more succinct this time. So what came to be known as the American Spiritualist Movement really started with two sisters from the small village of Hydesville, New York, uh, which is in Wayne County, New York in 1848. Those sisters are Margaret and Kate Fox. There was a third sister, Lee, who didn't really get involved in their exploits as mediums and didn't really take part in that till later in her life, besides having different sisters live with her at different points and cleaning their messes up one after the other. Because as we all know, with most history of mediums there's lots of messes and there's lots of fraud so much fraud but that's okay uh let's keep going they start hearing spirit rappings or knocking noises communicating with a spirit entity that they claim to be communicating with through these spirit wrappings in the house eventually they decide to call that entity mr splitfoot so for all my folklore nerds out there Carly, I'm looking at you. That's a nickname for the devil. So that seems like a great idea in a rural Christian town in New York in 1848. Doesn't really set them back. And eventually neighbors start to come to witness this. And so neighbors come witness this. Uh, eventually they claim, the sisters claim that they're contacting the spirit of a man named Charles B. Rosna, who had been murdered five years earlier and buried in the cellar. This missing person was never identified. There was never any record of a Charles B. Rosna, but people adhered to this and they started to be fascinated by the girl's apparent ability to communicate with the beyond. Arthur Conan Doyle, that is Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, in his own investigation of the Fox sisters in his book that he wrote, The History of Spiritualism, 
which he published in 1926. And yes, this is the same Arthur Conan Doyle that wrote the Sherlock Holmes stories. He claimed that neighbors apparently had dug up bones in the basement upon this claim by the sisters that a man was murdered there and that they were communicating with his spirit. I should also note for you here, for those of you that haven't listened before, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was a steadfast believer in the spiritualist movement who eventually in his life became president of the College of Psychic Studies. He wrote a history on spiritualism. And as I just mentioned, he became a leader for the Federation Spiritus Internationale uh, and the London Spiritualist Alliance. And he was a high-ranking member and supporter for the Society of Psychical Research, which was founded to investigate spiritualist mediums and then went on, uh, as we know, to, well, he didn't help form it, but then the Society for Psychical Research went on to uh, open an American branch, then that gives us the start to what we know now as paranormal investigation. So Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was involved in all of that. Uh, so he's a pretty amazing dude. So paranormal investigation, give the credit to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, not the Warrens, because it happened a lot earlier. Rant number two. Uh, <laughs> We now know that the origin of some of the wrappings in the house, as stated by Margaret in 1888, when she said, and this is from Margaret Fox, we went to bed at night. Uh, when we went to bed at night, we used to tie an apple to a string and move the string up and down, causing the apple to bump on the floor. Or we would drop the apple on the floor, making a strange noise every time it would rebound. Mother listened to this for a time. She would not understand it and did not suspect us as being capable of a trick because we were so young from the mouths of babes. Well, not in 1888, but babes at the time. So all this being said, none of it deterred the neighbors from believing that these girls were communicating with an actual spirit. And by 1850, they were performing as spiritualist mediums all over the Eastern United States. Thus begins the birth of the American spiritualist movement. And they're performing for some well-known people, well-known transcendentalists, abolitionists, suffragists, reform circles, which actually does have a tie. And I'll talk about it a little later why that's important. But as I've stated before, it's not until after the Civil War that we really start seeing the spiritualist movement take off and pick up steam and popularity. Uh, mass death, lack of ability to have formal funeral rites in some cases, turning away from traditional religions, and a group of mediums claiming that they could contact the dead and help you contact your dead loved ones on the other side made a pretty convincing case for people. And lo and behold, they all wanted to try and reach beyond the veil. By the mid-19th century, um, you know, publications start popping up to aid this and people start attaching even more to this movement. By the mid 19th century, the movement itself started to have a developed list of basic tenets to the movement. So initially it was just sort of a free for all of all these mediums claiming that they could contact the dead and urging people to come and speak to them and everything like that. Um, but finally they do start to come up with some basic tenets for this belief system because it starts to replace those traditional Judeo-Christian religions that were not offering people what they needed in that moment of need and that moment of national grief. Basically the structure of belief was as such. Some of them were that they rejected their movement being purely based in the supernatural, stating that the movement firmly upheld the principles of law. They believed that mediums could cause physical manifestations of spirit, which will later give birth to spirit photography being used as evidence. And it's still used by some paranormal ex experts today, as we know. They emphasized evolutionary and continual progress toward obtainable knowledge, and they believed that through the spiritualist movement, both mediums and participants 
were opening themselves up to answering and answering needs that established churches could not anymore. Sorry, I have to read my notes, guys, because it's pretty complicated. Again, they were opening themselves up to those needs that churches were not meeting anymore. And they believed that since the spiritualist movement upheld belief in the rights of others to own themselves, they were often active in reform movements. So this is that connection to spiritualists and reform movements, which is why you get so many famous abolitionists and suffragists like Frederick Douglass, who came to witness the Fox sisters seance at some point in his life, Mary, Mary Peabody Mann, uh, Elizabeth Peabody, and others that you associate with reform movements and transcendentalism, and you see them getting involved in spiritualism. It's because of that belief in the natural right to own yourself and own your own belief. So that's where that comes from, that connection. Uh, even when the Fox sisters were performing in New York and staying at Barnum's Hotel, they were visited by people like Horace Greeley, novelist James Fenimore Cooper, and even William Cullen Bryant uh, have all visited the Fox sisters at various points during this time. So clearly the connection with New England is a very strong one in the movement. And in fact, the Boston Banner of Light, which is one of hundreds of eventual spiritualist publications, was one of the most successful and prolific of the movement in getting word out to followers. So that connection with New England is there. It's not going anywhere. And as we're going to find out, it has a very innate connection with Salem as well through Charles Henry Foster and others. So it's this movement that Charles Foster finds himself involved in. So now let's get into his personal history, his life in Salem, and his start as a medium. So now we're getting into his personal history and his life and his start as a medium. So like I said in the beginning, Charles Henry Foster was born in Salem in 1833. He was the son of Joshua L. Foster, who was a former mariner in Salem. And according to scholars, he was brought up in an atmosphere that was conducive to his development as a psychic medium in his life. Son of Joshua Foster brought up in a good atmosphere. And according to Dalton, who I mentioned earlier, who wrote that book on spiritualism, the first, he was the first true Salem psychic celebrity of the 19th century, and I tend to agree, though I am going to point out that he is really the only strictly Salem person to reach notoriety in the way he did as a psychic medium specifically. Very important. Um, there are certainly others from New England and mainly Boston who did as well, who may have performed in Salem. But Foster is the only Salem-born and bred medium to get fame in that way in the 19th century. So just a little bit of clarification on that point. There are certainly practitioners of spiritualism in Salem that we have record of and that were active in the movement, but Foster is the only medium from Salem to reach fame. According to Foster's biographer, Bartlett, both of his parents claimed that seeing and communicating with spirits was normal in their household and that they assumed that it was normal for most families. And his mother even attested that she used to ask their spirit friends to rock the baby's cradle since they couldn't afford house help when Charles was young. So I don't know about the rest of you, but even though we know now that many claim Foster to be a fraud later in his life, which is an unfortunate end that most mediums met coming out of this movement. Um, I think it's just endearing that mama was asking the ghosts to rock the cradle. I mean, if you don't, you're probably not from Salem. And it's this power that Bartlett had to endear, and this is what I argue, he had this power to endear people to Foster's life that made people more sympathetic to him and sympathetic to his abilities after his death. Uh, Bartlett himself claimed that he was 
personally not convinced, according to him, of any spirits or spirit world, believing that science will eventually explain the workings of the mind, whether conscious or unconscious. Whatever happens in this world comes from this world. And I'll come back to that quote later, because I think that Bartlett is saying some very important things here. So anyway, Charles is brought up in Salem. His parents foster a belief in spirits and life after death and communicating with the dead from a very early age. At 14, he begins to experience loud raps on his school desk. And then at night, he claimed to hear furniture being tossed about the home. So here we see that Foster is claiming to hear spirit rappings like the Fox sisters and many of the early mediums in the movement. Going by Foster's year of birth, 1833, we can assume that he was 14 in 1847, but that's hard to say because timey-wimey stuff. So if that's correct, that means that he was experiencing these rappings one year before the Fox sisters. Uh, but again, we can't prove this, and neither can Foster, because he doesn't say this until later in his years when he's being interviewed by people asking him about his abilities. So that's when this comes up. So it's a little fishy. If he can claim that he was already experiencing that phenomenon, it's incredibly useful in building a career as a psychic medium. I mean... Do we really believe that he was hearing rappings before the Fox sisters? I'm inclined to say no, and that it was a brilliant career move, but I do know that he was raised by parents who definitively would have been amenable to the ideas behind spiritualism and who would have supported the Fox sisters' claims. Furthermore, you know, eventually later in his life, he would have seen things about the Fox sisters, especially if he becomes a follower of spiritualism himself, he would have seen that. Did he decide to make a career move and attribute the fact that he started experiencing these wrappings exactly one year before the Fox sisters to himself. Probably it's a good career move. I also know too, that this is probably what had an influence on the way he chose to present himself as he rose in notoriety. And we see this with a lot of mediums, just sort of claiming the talents of others to help spurn their own career. So that is normal during the spiritualist movement. It's normal during a lot of other things, as we all know. Uh, so, for example, there's an advertisement in the Salem Gazette. So, this is from the Salem Gazette. And I lost my place on March 28, 1843. And it reads as such, The Mysterious Lady Scientific and Unprecedented Actions at Lyceum Hall on Thursday and Friday evenings next. This writing is super small, so you're probably not going to be able to read a lot of it. You can try and squint if you want to. I apologize if it's super small. But it goes on to say that admission is 25 cents per person and that the performances are at 7 o'clock. So this person clearly did not reach the name of Charles Foster because all we see is the mysterious lady. And if you're not reaching notoriety, they're probably not going to put your name on that, which is why we don't see a name associated with this person that's performing at the Lyceum Hall in Salem in 1843. There were people from all over speaking at the Lyceum in Salem. Some of them were spiritualist mediums, most definitely. So... This is also why I hesitate to say that there were other famous Salem mediums, because there's no proof of that. Charles Henry Foster is the only specifically Salem medium that we see reaching that level of notoriety and reaching it later on. It would be irresponsible for me to say, basically, that there were other famous Salem mediums, and that there were a ton of famous Salem mediums besides Charles Henry Foster, so I'm not going to do it. Um, but Charles definitely grew up in a town where there were practicing spiritualists, and he was definitely primed for the kind of life that he led. There isn't really a lot out there 
about how Foster himself rose to mediumship, but we do have a couple of loose accounts flying around. There are claims by some randos out there that a man named N.O. Simons wrote to the Boston Banner of Light in 1857, which is odd. This whole claim is weird and odd because one, there's no date on it. It just says 1857 as claimed by this rando. Sorry, rando. There's no record of it anywhere. I typed in everything in every database that I know of that has Banner of Light available to view. There's nothing. I literally have looked. But the letter, anyway, in 1857, claims that this Simons fellow witnessed several of Charles Foster's talents at a seance and that during the seance, Foster became entranced with spirits speaking through him, written communications, and questions answered by raps on the table. The spirit apparently spoke for some time, and all present agreed that it was that of the deceased Reverend Hosea Ballou. So Bayou was one of the most influential early preachers in the Universalist movement. He lived in New England, but he would have been deceased five years at the time of this seance. Interestingly, his distant descendant, Aden or Aden Bayou, held a seance with Foster about 1862, which he wrote about in his autobiography. The first mention we actually see of Charles Henry Foster that we can confirm and that was released to the public was actually 1861. So I will take the Simon's letter with a grain of salt that this person supposedly talks about because, again, I dug through stuff for like a full day, literally just about this letter. I was trying to find this letter for hours and could not find it anywhere. This brings me to rant number three. I mentioned I found this on a blog, which does not have any sources cited. None whatsoever. So I have no idea if this author, like, copy and pasted someone else's work or took stuff from a 19th century book about Foster, because to my knowledge, the only book that exists about him, well, there's two. And actually, that brings me to one of my other pictures. So there's this one, which is an earlier book by Bartlett, and then there is the famous Salem Seer book. So those are the only publications that we know that are in existence about Foster specifically. There are other books on mediumship that mention Foster, but these are the only two that are done at any length that actually discuss several seances. It's weird that this Simon's letter doesn't exist anyway. So use your sources correctly, people. And if you find a great blog, no matter how well it's written, no matter how long and detailed it is, if there are citations great. If there aren't any, even if there are, look them up on your own to confirm them before you just say this information. And as I have experienced several times, if you message people, they will one, not get back to you ever. Two, berate you for even suggesting that they are wrong while still not sharing the source. Or they will get back to you and be pleasant, which I've also had happen. But uh, my answer to that is if you want to be gatekeepy and you have no sources, I'm going to call it BS. And sorry, guys, there's a dog barking because my neighbors have had it outside all day. Anyway, this is something that I get really worked up about with rando blogs and writing without source checking. Uh, to give a Salem example is how we still get people walking around saying that Sheriff George Corwin was strangling people in the upper floor of the John Ward house, which I have legit stood on the street and heard people say as a tour guide. And I would hope beyond hope that that has been rectified, but probably not. Anyway, back to Foster. That was rant number three. Welcome, everyone. Uh, <laughs> most sources agree that he has his introduction into the wider realm of spiritualism in 1861, which is also when we see the first published mention of him in the Banner of Light, 
and they run a short paragraph in that in September of 1861 that says, we have received a communication from Dr. H.F. Gardner in regard to the singular and astonishing manifestations he has witnessed through the mediumship of Mr. Charles H. Foster, who is now located at number 75 Beach Street, which we shall print in our next issue. So I don't know where Beach Street was located in Salem at this time. I believe they mean Beach Ave on the Salem Neck because any other sources I've had have said that Foster most likely lived in the Salem Neck neighborhood. Uh, in this time, and it would make sense if his father was a mariner because he lived around that area. That is essentially where he lived at that time in Salem. And the Banner of Light makes good on their promise to print again in their next issue. Uh, and Gardner's letter described Charles H. Foster's core repertoire, spirit raps, the pellet ballot test, and blood writing. Great. Of these, it was the blood writing, nearly all, always on Foster's arm or the back of his hand, that most startled this man named Gardner, who, who witnessed this seance. Uh, the question for the skeptic to answer then in this is, when, how did the answers come about and how were they produced upon his arm? So Foster received almost immediately thereafter, having this publication in the Boston Banner of Light, further testimony of a person named A.B. Child, who wrote in the banner in October of 1861, our company consisted of three persons beside Mr. Foster. We wrote some half dozen names each on separate slips of paper out of Mr. Foster's sight and knowledge, folded them close, and rolled them in to little round balls slightly larger than a pea. These balls were all made of the same kind of paper and were all about the same size. Then the 18 balls more or less were shaken and mixed together so thoroughly that it was impossible for either one of our party to tell which was which. We sat by the table. Very loud raps came in various places in the room. On the table, under it, on the floor, on the walls, and on the ceiling. These wraps were so heavy as to make the gas fixtures and furniture in the room rattle and produce a sensible jarring felt by everyone in the room. Mr. Foster, an undisturbed, in an undisturbed and quiet way, said as he gazed apparently on some unseen visitant in the room, What a powerful man! Bowed courteously as if some person had come into his presence and continued, What did you say? Desort? Desart? I cannot hear. Speak louder. I cannot understand. Write your name. His left hand was then moved as if by some unseen power and took up one of the paper balls and handed it to me and said, that is the name. He is your friend. And at the same time, his right hand was seized and wrote the word DeSoto. I unrolled the ball and this name was written on it. The name has heretofore been subscribed to many communications I have received. So this is someone attesting to the fact that Charles Foster's talents are indeed authentic. Back to this from 1861. We see someone describing the talents that would aid Foster's rise as a famous medium. And he was known for two main things, skin writing and pellet reading, which is what you just heard me describe, which we can see illustrated in that account. The skin writing was said to have bubbled up from under his skin and appeared as red welts. So to give you an idea if you've ever scratched your arm and you have that red mark that raises, uh, this is basically what people are saying they witness when Charles Foster would make this writing appear on his skin. Usually, uh, according to many accounts, this would appear as three initials of the spirit trying to make contact. The second method in his early work involved pellet reading, in which Foster would ask the people sitting for the seance to write the names of their dead on slips of paper while he was out of the room, 
roll them up, mix them together. Uh, and then when he came back in, he went into a trance, delivered addresses from the spirits listed on the pellets, and even went so far as to give descriptions of the spirits and talk about what they looked like. So the, these are the kinds of things that Charles is performing in his earlier sort of career. As far as personality, don't know much about it, only know what people wrote about him. He was apparently known to be contradictory and stubborn and would just go his own way on matters. He also apparently didn't let others' opinions bother him. And in fact, when Arthur Conan Doyle was writing about him, he actually wrote that he was not only Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but he represented half a dozen different Jekylls and Hydes. And so here we see Foster then starting to build his reputation. And he starts performing from people in the general area here in Boston and Salem and all over the world. And we know that in 1861, he travels to England to perform and he performs a seance at the home of a man named William Wilkinson, William Wilkinson, sorry, who is the editor of Spiritual Magazine, which is a different magazine than the one I'm going to talk about right after it, which is the one that tries to expose him and basically absolutely slams him. Uh, so he goes to William Wilkinson's home. And he accompany, is accompanied by a man named John Ashburner, who's an authority on animal magnetism and spiritualism, who also recorded that during this seance, he saw nine materialized hands floating over the table and witnessed Foster levitate while playing the piano. So now we're seeing that Foster's seances are getting a whole lot more sensational, which is always the general trajectory for a lot of these spiritualist mediums. Uh, I'm going to pause here to explain a little bit about animal magnetism and the work of Emanuel Swedenberg and, and Franz Mesmer, because those are very important to what uh, this person just said about Charles Henry Foster's seances. It's where the scientific side of spiritualism comes in too, as I wrote in my notes, and it's what is at the heart of the later organizations like Society for Psychical Research and the American branch. So bear with me, I'll try and make this as painless as possible. It's a whole lot of hardcore, like, philosophy and philosophy and physics all gathered into one and that's not my forte but i'll explain it as best i can it is worth mentioning since bartlett in his biography calls foster the greatest medium since emmanuel swedenberg that those were his words and describing charles henry foster so he's connecting him to these earlier movements so emmanuel swedenberg lived from 1688 to 1772 so this is showing us that scientific and rational explanations for communication with other realms and the dead is something that has a very far back reach clearly communication with the dead is going on for a very long time and it's something that i know i've talked about before in some of my previous things mainly in the wheeland podcast so for any of you that listen to that one swedenberg is very much hailed by early deists in the 18th century so this is relevant to the entire history of spiritualism and its connection to both a spiritual belief and a belief rooted in scientific thought which is important to remember so swedenberg started out as a theologian he then went to London and Oxford, where he attended the lectures of people like Sir Isaac Newton and became entrenched in many of the scientific and religious debates of the day. He also held a seat at the Swedish House of Nobles, and he served as the king's engineering advisor for most of his life in that position. He himself then became among the world's leading scholars in a lot of these areas as well. So Emanuel Swedenberg... Uh, eventually ends up in Leipzig, and he publishes a two-volume series uh, describing his ideas of the metaphysical. And it really takes on like hotcakes. 
So he publishes these books, and according to a scholar named John S. Holler, he postulated that the membranes and fluid constituting the human organism resonated with auras in the universe. Energy was not something added to matter, but was intrinsic in matter. Energy, therefore, was actually matter, according to his theories. With this concept, Swedenborg presaged the thinking on atomic particles and atomic energy by 200 years with that thinking. So eventually, these theories lead him to to weightier subjects, and eventually that subject becomes interest uh, in issues to do with the natural world, and mainly it involved trying to find physical traces of the soul. So he's using this idea of this natural liquid energy to see if he can find physical traces of the soul after death. So this is what Swedenberg's beliefs are. He did struggle with his religiosity in all of this. Uh, He was a very religious man. He obviously was a theologian before his time in becoming a scientist. And so there were people that criticized his work. While they liked Swedenberg's work, they were also criticizing his over-focus on religion. And one of those was actually everyone's favorite transcendentalist, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who wrote about him that the vice of Swedenberg's mind is its theological determination. Nothing with him has the liberality of universal wisdom, but we are always in a church. So basically, Emerson is saying that he's skewing his own research by his religious biases. Swedenberg also liked to experiment with deep um, breathing and meditation. So as he put it, in order to commune with the other side. And this is something that we see echoed in a lot of deistic thought through the 18th century as connecting with natural forces and being able to mentally control them through your own meditation. That's absolutely something we see reflected in works of the time, including Wieland by Charles Brockton Brown, which I talked about in a previous episode. So for those of you that don't know what I'm talking about, go watch that one. It's all there. Uh, Does Swedenborgianism have a connection to Salem, you ask? Of course it does. Uh, According to Dalton, in 1794, a man named William Hill, who's a boarder in Salem, made his strong beliefs in the doctrines of Emanuel Swedenborg known to all who would listen. And she lists some others that we have some apocryphal records of. So yes, Swedenborg definitely made its way to Salem during the age of deism. There's another man who I love talking about uh, named Jones Berry, who once very excitedly proclaimed to Elizabeth Peabody while he was in her home that he was able to channel the very voice of God and that he has, in her words, come to baptize her with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And she very kindly then asked him to get off her lawn, I suspect, because she wrote that she was very, very unearthed by this whole interaction. So you can just imagine Elizabeth Peabody asking someone kindly to get off her lawn. Um, I like doing that. So (laughs) again, uh, Vary was a firm believer though, uh, Jones Vary, in both Swedenborgian teachings and deism. So it tracks. It's also worth noting that he, Jones Vary, suffered uh, severely from mental health later in his life, um, from from mental health issues, I should say. Uh, He, in fact, ended up at McLean Asylum for a time, which is what I told you all would come back to some of my inspiration for helping to craft smoke and mirrors for intramersive. Helping, that's not a word. Anyway. That helped me in, in sort of the inspiration and in connecting spiritualism with McLean Hospital because there actually was a connection. Jones Vary was someone who believed in spiritualistic beliefs and he ended up in McLean Asylum. So I swear it's going to get relevant by the end. Uh, <laughs> on the other hand, we have Franz Mesmer then, if we're talking about beliefs in spiritualism and how those tie to Charles Henry Foster and his practice. Franz Mesmer becomes very important in the scientific connection to the world of spiritualists. 
And he is seen to be the person who's largely cited improving physical manifestations or disproving them uh, by mediums of the era. So I'm going to try to explain this as plainly as possible. Otherwise, we're going to be here all night. Mesmerism or animal magnetism are a field of study and practice developed by the beliefs and work of Franz Anton Mesmer who lived from 1734 to 1815, roughly. Uh, he believed in something called therapeutic mesmerism as a treatment for the mentally ill. And so this is where his ideas spring from. In his work with patients, he eventually concluded that humans were a part of a series of energies. In his work with his patients, he eventually concludes that humans were a part of a series of energies and could connect with and tap into these energies using what he called animal magnetism, which he described as a kind of vital fluid. So again, these fluids and ideas of energies as matter and energies as physical. So he said that this fluid or vital fluid could pass between a patient and a doctor and then Basically, it also is an invisible energy. So he thinks that this liquid energy can pass between a patient and a doctor. He got the name animal from obviously talking about humans or living beings and this energy that this energy flowed through. And then he added magnetism to it to propose that the effect on the human body of these exchanging energies was analogous of the magnet. So in effect, it worked that way, the same as a magnet, which is where you get animal magnetism. Uh, cool little fact about Mesmer to break up all this heavy theory, because I know you guys didn't come here for a bunch of like metaphysical theory. Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, none other, performed one of his earliest operas in Mesmer's private theater. So Mesmer was a very influential gentleman, even in his life. So just to break that up a little bit and give you all a little bit of the light palatable uh, material. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> okay, so... Let's break all this down. When spiritualist mediums enter a trance, they are technically entering, and this is all my notes, by the way. I wrote this crazy theory, so bear with me. When spiritualist mediums enter a trance, they are technically entering a mesmeric state and therefore are able to absorb the magnetic en en energy of those around them. We also often see that touch is an essential part of some seance tables. So in effect, they are amplifying this and allowing the medium to tap into the magnetic energies of those seated at the table directly. So if we're going with the explanation of, say, the Society for Psychical Research, this mesmic, mesmeric trance allowing the medium to receive messages from those at the table. Then you add the Swedenborgian belief that through deep meditation, you can also receive natural energies around you and communicate with those. And you have, voila, the perfect combination of the belief that mediums would use to explain their talents. Um, then you have the law of conservation of energy, which is the physical law that states that energy can neither be created or destroyed, which would mean, and according to this day, by many paranormal investigators, um, and something I've used myself to explain scientifically what the idea behind haunting is, and I actually referenced it in um, a talk about haunting in Salem that I gave for the Taps Family Reunion uh, that happened in Beverly in 2016. Yeah, I did that once, and I miss a lot of those people because they're awesome, and a lot of them really care about the history, which is really cool, and they're really cool. Anyway, so I actually thought of bringing this up with me too. So right there, there's my little name tag that I'm a speaker. Yay. Um, <laughs> but anyway, back to that. So according to this law of conservation of energies, that would mean that the energies of the dead 
are simply released. And that through animal magnetism theory, the medium is using the magnetic energies of those at the table to draw the outside energies to them all through the amplified use of physical touch. The medium is then able through the theory of Swedenborg to enter that deep meditation he talks about and communicate with the dead. Boom. Um, I'm not trying to prove that to any of you, by the way. You can, you know, believe what you want, but I'm just saying that historically and theoretically, this is what mediums and spiritualists were using to justify their talents and to ground them in so called reality. Not only in 1861, back to Foster, has Foster added this materialization and props to his routine, which he didn't before, and he was actually commended by not having to use props for his talents because he was using the skin writing and the pellet reading. He starts adding these things and he starts performing for even more notable personalities like Robert Browning, Alfred Lord Tennyson, and he eventually performs for Mary Todd Lincoln, who is also a firm believer in spiritualism. And after the death of her son and then the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, and one of the most famous spiritualist photographs that we know now was fraud is that picture of Mary Todd Lincoln with Abraham Lincoln behind her. So she was a staunch believer too. Um, and as I said before, you know, Foster by this time had traveled to England. After England, Foster left for Paris. And he appeared before and performed for Napoleon and his empress and Belgium's King Leopold. So this is somebody that very quickly gets notoriety. But in 1863, he runs into a bit of trouble. He is shown to be fraudulent, essentially. And there is a scathing review of Foster in a different magazine called The Spiritual Magazine. So while that one in London was called Spiritual, this one is actually called The Spiritual Magazine. And they claimed that they could prove that Foster would fake the phenomenon, uh, the writing on his skin, and that he claimed that they claimed that messages from the dead were actually in his own handwriting. Uh, so I'm going to read a little bit of that because it is incredibly scathing for those of you that aren't reading it on your screen. So it says... We cannot say how much of what we saw might be trick or how much might be true, but we distrust the powers of this editor as an investigator and decline to receive his gratuitous testimony to Mr. Foster's character. So this is refuting somebody that submitted on behalf of Foster, saying that he's very good at what he does. We believe Mr. Foster to be a medium, as we have said, of remarkable powers, but we know him also to deceive and to cheat not only with the pellets, but in others of his pretended manifestations. This is why we have, we have throughout carefully cautioned our readers to be on their guard and take nothing for granted. And at last has come a letter from Judge Edmonds of New York, which gives such sickening details of his criminality in another direction that last month we stated we should no longer soil our pages with his name or mediumship. Wow. Yikes. So this is how they come after Foster because of the testimony of one man named Judge Edmonds. They basically dismiss everything that Foster has done. He starts getting sort of picked up and I guess um, called out against by other people as well. So there are some pretty famous people that call him out. Uh, one of them being this guy right here, Washington Irving Bishop. And yes, he is named after that Washington Irving, who was an American stage mentalist. Uh, and then later in his life, he was frown, uh, found to be fraudulent by another man, Haraward Carrington, 
who was a member of the American Society for Psychical Research and later founded the American Psychical Institute in 1921. Um, which, by the way, the American Psychical Institute was one of the first to investigate psychical phenomena preceding the more well-known National Laboratory of Psychical Research in London. Uh, but the claims by Carrington come later, so I'm going to go back here and I am going to focus on Bishop's claims. So... I just wanted to note that one of the big wigs in psychical research at the time also later claimed that Foster was a fraud, but that is much after his death, so it's not incredibly relevant. Washington Irving Bishop was born in 1855, and throughout the 1870s, he was a manager for Anna Eva Fay, who is another well-known spiritualist medium. He quickly figures out her acts, and he finds her to be a fraud, and in 1876, he exposes her tricks to the media. He then becomes an anti-spiritualist performer, and later wrote a book exposing the tricks of some of the most well-known mediums of the day. And I have found a PDF copy of that book. I did hunt one down, but I would love a physical copy of that book. So, oh my God, all, all my crazy antique book hunters out there, I accept donations in the form of old crazy spiritualist and anti-spiritualist publications and books, please. Um, anyway, so he uses his feats of disproving tricks to strike out against many mediums, one of them being Charles Henry Foster, the Salem seer. So after all of this sort of slow downfall where he gets very big fame and then quickly gets taken down a notch, Foster becomes a little more private in his mediumship. Foster starts to become a little more private in his mediumship for a, a couple of years. Until 1870, when he meets George C. Bartlett at a home in New York City, and he asks Bartlett to attend one of his seances as the guest of a mutual friend, who in the book Seer, uh, Salem Seer, Bartlett says is a poet, and he reads a little bit about her poetry, and he says that this woman was impoverished when she was living in New Orleans, then moved to New York City, uh, and became this, this great poet. Um, but when Bartlett attends the seance, he is absolutely wowed by what he sees. He calls it in his book, The Salem Seer, the most marvelous power he had ever witnessed. And he says that all in attendance were astonished and mystified beyond expression. So Bartlett, so moved by what he saw, immediately offers to advertise for Foster and he enters the public eye again. So Charles Henry Foster, after many years, enters that public eye again. Uh, he keeps performing for two years publicly until he is exposed again by a man named John W. Truesdell in 1872. And he noted that during seances, Foster, who was a smoker, would repeatedly light matches for his cigar. Uh, he suspected whilst doing this that he would approach the table, read the pellets, and substitute them for blanks. According to Truesdell, he said, I noticed that the medium experienced fresh trouble in lighting his cigar. After several matches had been destroyed in this apparently fruitless attempt, Mr. Foster picked up one of the little paper balls and slowly spelled out one of the names I had written and pointing out, pointing it out, requested me to see if the spirits were correct. I did so. And at the same time, seized the other five pellets, which proved upon examination to be every one of them a blank. So quickly did I accomplish this little piece of strategy that the medium scarcely realized his dilemma. The professional magician, R.D. Chater, who attended seances with Foster, also claimed to have detected his tricks, um, and Chater observed his methods of concealing secret pellets between his fingers and substituting them. So basically, Bart, uh, Foster finds himself again in trouble. Bartlett is not deterred by this. Bartlett thinks that this is a remarkable man. This is a man that clearly has many talents, and he, again, as he said, 
He believes that everything in this world happens in this world. So he's not saying Bartlett in that, that he does not believe Charles Henry Foster has the ability to communicate with the spirits. He just doesn't believe it's from another world. So again, he might just be believing that physical manifestation of spirit is a natural cause. So I would like to say that I think that Bartlett did believe Charles Foster at least enough to have this ongoing friendship with him throughout his life. Bartlett traveled with and promoted Foster for the rest of his life as a medium. Uh, But after 1872 and after that experience, his major career was all but finished because of all of these exposures and people seeing him as a fraud and a performer rather than a powerful psychic medium. Foster eventually becomes very depressed, and according to Bartlett, he became exhausted. He claimed to be tired a lot, and Bartlett would write his dual, would later write, his dual nature would enable him to sit in seances for days on end, and then not surprisingly, days and weeks would come when he would turn hundreds of dollars away and disappoint the people and do absolutely nothing. Bartlett, uh, despite this, Bartlett tries to spurn Foster to continue performing. But he eventually announced to Bartlett that he intended to permanently retire to his home in Salem, and so he did until his death. Uh, And Bartlett later wrote about that death um, in his book, so I'm going to sort of end this episode by reading a little bit about what Bartlett says. He said, on a summer day in the early 80s, meaning the 1880s, Mr. Foster and I took a long walk. He told me he was completely tired out and had pains in his head and thought he had overworked that in a few days he was going to his home in Salem where he should remain quiet and take a long and much needed rest. In a few weeks from that time, I heard of his severe illness, which proved to be an attack of brain fever. He became delirious and after the fever left him, although health came back to his body, his mind remained diseased. By the physician's advice, he was removed to the Danvers Insane Asylum where he was thoroughly examined and pronounced to have softening of the brain and was thought to be incurable. I went to Salem and accompanied by Mr. Foster's father, Joshua L. Foster, we drove to Danvers and spent the day with Charles. He recognized me and at first seemed as rational as ever, but would occasionally wander into some imaginary and ridiculous fantasies. He commenced to tell me about a woman from Marblehead who came over to Salem to throw hot water on him and other like ridiculous thoughts seemed to flood his brain at times. A little common sense talk would bring him back, And he would say that he knew it was foolish. And for half of three quarters of an hour, he would talk as rational and seem as sane as ever. He was harmless and gentle as a child. And in a few months was taken to his aunt's home in Salem, where he was tenderly cared for and had the best nursing and medical treatment. My last visit to him was depressing. It was sad to see a man who had been gifted with almost superhuman power, so completely subjugated, weak and helpless. He seemed to have no desire beyond sitting in his rocking chair by the open window, the grapevine shading him from the sun. Willing to sit there quietly, day after day, with a faraway look, and desiring to converse with no one, I said, Charlie, how do you feel? Tell me exactly how you feel. He replied, oh, George, I am so tired, so tired. I need rest. I long for rest, and I am simply worn out. I said, do you ever crave any wine or liquor? And he said, no, I only care for water when I am thirsty. I have no desire to drink anything else. And then Bartlett ends by saying, he only awaited the end, longing for perfect rest. His case was certainly very peculiar. Occasionally he would brighten up and seem to enjoy talking with me, but most of the time I am quite sure it fatigued him and that he preferred being left entirely alone. 
He lingered in this condition on the borderland for many months, finally stepping over on December the 15th, 1885, aged 52 years, two months, and 20 days. A friend writes, for years before his death, he was stricken with brain fever, and since that time, the curtain of his life has been drawn, and his once strong and brilliant mind was clouded forever. He has passed to that spirit land that he seemed to know so much of and communed with so often. Loving hands performed every tender office and smoothed his pillow till life's fitful fever ended. The drapery of his couch is wrapped about him, and he now rests in pleasant dreams." At two o'clock in the afternoon of Thursday, December 17th, an assemblage of friends which filled the house at 14 William Street, which he died, where he died, convened to offer the last tokens of respect to the memory of the deceased. Among those present were Reverend Fielder Israel, ex-alderman John B. Bettis of Salem, Abbott Walker of Hamilton, John R. Bassett, Caleb Buffum, under whose direction the details of the funeral were arranged and carried out, Luther Colby of the Banner of Light, and others. The remains were disposed in a handsome casket of black walnut. A large floral pillow of rare flowers bearing the suggestive word rest was bestowed at the head of the casket. The silver plate which bore his name and age was partly encircled by a beautiful floral crescent and the floral wreaths and other offerings were seen in profusion. His interment occurred at Harmony Grove Cemetery, Salem, Massachusetts. So that is the life of this amazing person who was a part of Salem's history and spiritualism, who is rarely talked about, who ended his life by softening of the brain and brain fever was actually put in the insane asylum, or as they call it from this article, you can see in the Boston Advertiser, the insane asylum at Danvers. Uh, where And then he finally was brought home to the house of his aunt, so that is the home on 14 William Street, uh, and he was finally laid to rest uh, in Harmony Grove Cemetery, so you can actually still see his headstone in Harmony Grove today. So I would like to thank everyone once again for joining me for another episode, and if you're just joining now and you'd like to see this later, it will be up on Creative North Shore's website. It will also be up on the Facebook page. I will share it on the Life After Midnight Facebook page, and hopefully the recording is this will be up soon on iTunes and on my website, lifeaftermidnightsalem.com. So you can look for it there as well uh, for anyone that will be listening on iTunes in the future. Thank you for bearing with this live episode. And I will have all of these pictures on the website for you to accompany as you listen to this. Uh, So that's my weird um, podcaster voice to end the evening. Uh, Thank you so much, everyone. And I'm going to stop my share right now. And hopefully I will see you next week. As always, if you have any suggestions about things you'd like to hear me talk about, if you had anything in this episode you'd like to hear more about, ask me questions. I will definitely answer them in the next episode. And as always, stay spooky, everyone.